By texting 64,000, you agree to receive recurring automated marketing messages from Bartesian. Message and data rates may apply. No purchase required. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I would love to come home to a bartender who would whip up any cocktail I ever wanted. A perfect old-fashioned, a margarita, a new cocktail I've never tried? Well, guess what? Now it's possible with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. This thing is sleek, the size of a coffee maker, and it makes premium cocktails at the touch of a button. And it's not just the basic, ordinary cocktails. You can choose from over 50 different cocktails, from the classics to the exotic premium ones. Just touch a button, and you have freshly mixed, perfectly balanced cocktails in seconds. When my wife and I entertain, which sometimes is a little too often, the Bartesian Cocktail Maker is the center of the party. It's great because we don't have to stock all kinds of individual mixers for complicated recipes. Every guest gets a cocktail of their choice in literally seconds. We've even given the Bartesian as gifts to our family and friends. And now for a limited time, get free cocktails and free shipping with your new Bartesian. Just text PODCAST to 64000. Text P-O-D-C-A-S-T to 64000 to get free cocktails and free shipping. Text PODCAST to 64000. Welcome to Big Blend Radio with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy, editors of BigBlendMagazine.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Big Blend Radio's Nature Connection Show. Every fourth Friday, we have our special guest co-host, fine art nature photographer. Join us, Margo Carrera, and I encourage you to go to her website. It's... uh, CarreraFineArtGallery.com, and she joins us every fourth Friday to really talk about the environment. She's passionate about it, and so are we here mm-hmm. on Big Blend Radio. And in fact, Nancy and I travel full time across the country, uh, documenting parks and public lands, and because we got to take care of them and had to take care of our green mm-hmm. space. But um, travel means what are we doing at the pump? And today we're going to talk about offshore wind. So we're very excited to welcome back on the show, Mike Dunmire. Many of you have heard him on our shows over the years with Ocean Champions, which was a nonprofit uh, backing political candidates that were doing the right thing for the ocean. But now he's still paddling around in the ocean because Mike likes to surf, I believe. He likes the ocean, but he also understands about green energy. And he works with U.S. Wind, and he's based out of uh, Maryland and Delaware regions. So I encourage you to go to uswindinc.com. So welcome back, Mike. How are you? Um, Fabulous. It's so great to be here with you guys again. Hey, yeah. And I'm glad, Margo, this is cool. This is talking about something we've been talking about on the shows right I think it was so interesting this year we started this environment series with you and we started talking about bees and then we Mm -hmm. started about what communities do in Maryland with Bethesda Green uh, just recently talking about climate change activism and it's getting deeper and deeper Marco (laughs) yeah we're attracting it in and (laughs) and that shows that it's necessary to go back out into the world so thank you for being here and and giving your part on the situation and what what could be done, because that's why I I told them when we started this that I really wanted to get information out about what's happening, but moreover, what can be done? Yeah. You know, what positive things have been done and are working and what um, can people out there do themselves at their homes, all the way to you know their city, community, and then all the way to connecting uh, trying to get the government to um, in, you know, establish something on the behalf of the environment. So, mm. so that's, that's why I, I like to do this show and 
come on and cheer you on. Yeah, she's a good cheerleader for sure and and keeps up with things all the time uh you know it's interesting Mike talking about something local it's interesting so offshore wind and this is in Maryland and Delaware right and you're in Lewes Delaware which we were right around the corner last time we were there and I'm like I know but I forgive you I we're gonna see you this year we're gonna see you we're coming we're coming we're coming east um but that's something interesting about offshore wind. And I want to say that's something localized, right? So U.S. wind um, is pretty much in your region right now. So what are the effects of that on a local scale in regards to, hey, we're going to go offshore and we're going to do this in the ocean. We're going to talk. I know I know our listeners are going to go like, well, what about the turtles? What about the birds? We're going to talk mm-hmm. about all of that. But setting up you know, green energy in on the coastline does it have a positive impact in regards to your local economy creating jobs? Just, I want to go there immediately because we're looking at right now with Russia, our gas prices, I don't know where you are, but ga- well, you're in San Diego, mm-hmm. <laughs> Margo. What is your gas prices like right now? <laughs> yeah, I- I'm getting close to $6. Oh, no. oh. Yeah. yeah, here it's about five in Washington state where we are. What's it like for you, Mike? Um, mid fours, so not quite as bad. I told Nancy it's time Fine. to go east. Yeah, <laughs> east. But no, the thing is, we need to change. And and this whole thing with the oil with Russia and all of that. Here we are with this war, this Ukraine, this war that Russia has put on Ukraine. And you know, we do have reserves, and yet everybody's already raising the prices, which is kind of like wrong. Um, but at the same time. Wouldn't this, on a global perspective, if we had more offshore wind energy, you know, electric cars, all of this kind of thing, wouldn't this help us right now today if we were better set up? And then let's get into the local immediate thing. But having these alternatives, would we be a little bit happier right now if we already had this in place? Oh, sure. I mean, we, we don't only use oil for uh, powering our cars, you know, with, with gas. It's used in a lot of different uh, things, including creation of, of you know, petrochemical products. Uh, so the more uh, uh, renewable energy we've got, the less oil we need to use kind of, you know, just for energy, we could apply it to the other things that it's used for. The less dependent we have to be on problematic regimes like Russia, like Saudi Arabia, et cetera. Mm. So, absolutely. Yeah, and oil is important. You're right about that. I mean, we're even, you're using it in, I know, Marga, your husband, uh, Jorge, is in, you know, the medical industry, and a lot of parts and things are used in medical, you know, you, I know the rod in my arm, there's something to do with oil in there, but <laughs> maybe that's how I, you know, how okay. it happened in the beginning, but I, don't I know, know Lisa was bionic. I, yeah, really, I do have a bionic, bionic. Arm, but it doesn't beep in Walmarts, but on, in other places it does. Maybe it doesn't like Walmart, but and no offense, Walmart, but you know, this, this getting this diversification is really important, but on a local level, how does it affect your local economy? Um, are people worried about, or are you stealing jobs or are they seeing any benefit in job creation? Well, uh, there are a couple levels to talk about this. So yeah, the, it, there is a big boost for jobs. Um, so I'll, I'll come in in the middle. At some point, it's probably useful to talk about how this whole thing gets started, how they're created. But uh, eventually, no offshore wind farm gets built without someone telling it that it, they'll buy their energy ahead of time. These projects cost a couple billion dollars. So no one wow. builds them on spec. 
so for us, the Maryland, uh, Maryland, the state of Maryland has a renewable energy standard and has a requirement to have a certain percentage of their energy delivered through offshore wind. Uh, so their public service commission uh, issued a, uh, created an auction for uh, offshore renewable energy certificates, OREX. Uh, and what these do is they establish the price that the state will pay for the energy delivered by offshore wind projects if that project is completed successfully. So there's still risk in whether the project is going to make it through, going to be created. But if it is, we know what the cash flows are going to be. And that certainty allows investment capital to flow in and allows these very expensive projects to be mm -hmm. built. Um, so as a part of creating that certainty by issuing the OREX, and I should say that's not a subsidy, it just establishes the future price of the energy. And these auctions work in reverse, right? Lowest price is likely to win. Um, uh, but because the Maryland Public Service Commission is stepping up to do that and provide that role, the state of Maryland also gets to stipulate a lot of requirements for the winners. So uh, we have won 1.1, about 1.1 gigawatts worth of OREX. Uh, and we have an offshore wind energy area that's off the coast of Maryland, principally. We have a competitor, uh, Orsted, that has the rights to an offshore wind energy area, energy area that's off the coast of Delaware. They've also won about one gigawatt worth of OREX from the state of Maryland. Now, between the two of us companies, we will create uh, over 10,000 jobs in the state of Maryland. It's you know, part of wow. what we need to do as a result of Maryland establishing this OREC program and creating this auction that we, that we want. Um, part of the way this gets done is, and this is what you know, renewable energies and really offshore wind in, in, in particular, uh, the amount of jobs you have specifically like manning the operations of the project is about on par with what you would have for any power plant. But what offshore wind will do is it really will kind of awaken manufacturing in the, in the United States. So there's the Bethlehem steel plant in Baltimore has been shuttered for decades. We've taken that over. We've taken a lease on it and we're going to put, uh, you know, 3,500 people to work building that out into a facility that we will use to build the monopile foundations that our turbines will sit on top of in the ocean. Uh, so that's 3,500 uh, you know, jobs to rebuild this facility. And then about 600 jobs permanent for steel welder, you know, steel builders, again, the, the American steel industry building these steel monopiles. And we did an event at Sparrows Point in Baltimore where the Bethlehem steel plant was, and you've got multi-generational connections back to Bethlehem Steel, people talking about their grandparents building the steel that went into fighting wow. World War II or building the Golden Gate Bridge and, and all this pride coming It's like, like Carnegie days, man. Yeah. It, it is. And, and, and uh, Orsted, our competitor, is building a plant uh, nearby that will create the uh, marine cables that are used to transmit the energy back to the grid. Cool. Um, all of this requires a lot of specialized uh, vessels out at a sea to do the construction these vessels have to be U.S. flags so that reawakens shipyards. So there are all these jobs created to, to be able to facilitate the supply chain to create these, uh, these offshore wind farms. And, uh, you know, as we bring them on shore, we'll be investing hundreds of millions of dollars into the local grid to strengthen the grid so it can accept all this energy. That also creates jobs, in this case, would be in Delaware for the people doing that grid work. We'll be burying our cables. That's jobs, you know, to, to do the work burying those cables. And then there are all kinds of peripheral industries that can 
come up around uh, offshore wind. So for example, we're talking to the University of Delaware and some local entrepreneurs about building an offshore wind skills academy for certifying people to do the maintenance work on these turbines once they're in the water. Uh, and that of course, then you know, you've got people coming into this, uh, this, this training center from all over, even Europe to be trained here brings in tourism money to the local economy. So there are all kinds of positive impacts and really ripple effects that these offshore wind farms can have. Wow, this is amazing to hear about yeah. the jobs because you hear about, oh, what's going to happen to coal? What's going to happen you know, to oil, the, the people in, in these skills? And steel at the same time, steel is part of that. What, what's going to happen to all these jobs? But I think there's training to be done. You know, it's, I think it opens mm. up a whole new field and it's up to the general public to understand you know if your kid's going to college hey there's extra things to to look at it's kind of like hey there's new things when i went to school none of this existed holy cow i mean even kids <laughs> going to college now it's like by the time they graduate there's a whole new job that's created that we didn't even know there was a name for you know what i mean so it's, mm -hmm. it's exciting in regards to that, um, let's talk a little bit on, in regards to these things being how, what happens out in the ocean. Right. So this is sounding good. And by the way, I've watched, I'm following US Wind on social media and it seems like you guys are giving money into the community as well, not just creating jobs, but also sponsoring different things and already you know, giving back in to the community, which is really cool. I think there was a scholarship program. There was something in there I was like, Dude, they're doing some good stuff. This is cool. Yeah, we, uh, we, we gave $100,000 to the Center for the Inland Bays to complete there. This is a group that works on uh, uh, water quality in, in the inland bays and does a lot of outreach and education. So we're helping them. One night, one goal. Stop suicide. On June 3rd, Washington, D.C. will host the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's Out of the Darkness Overnight Walk. Join thousands as we journey over 16 miles from dusk till dawn for a night of hope and healing while raising funds and awareness for this important cause. Register today at theovernight.org or call 888-THE-OVERNIGHT. That's 888-843-6837. In honor of Black History Month, raise a glass to Black-owned brands. Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery, has one of the largest selections of Black-owned drinks to explore. From a top-shelf whiskey to an artisanal twist on a Caribbean classic, get these drinks delivered right to your door. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com to find your new favorite. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Finished their capital campaign to, to improve their education facility uh, at, a, cool. at a nature preserve. Uh, we're going to be investing in a, a business incubator in Delaware, uh, as well as looking to, to figure out how we can support the coastal towns and do things to help them address challenges that they have. Wow. Nice. This is cool. Margo, yeah, it is. Are you happy? <laughs> <laughs> I have questions as the environmentalist. Go, go. <laughs> okay, so what are you doing um, to protect you know, the, the, the water and, mm. and the sea life as you're doing this work, putting it in and, mm. and keeping it um, going, ongoing? And uh, what, uh, what can you address that? There's uh, uh, there's a lot that, that is behind that question. Can I give a long answer? Yeah, <laughs> you, you um, answer whatever you. you so answer. I'll I'll start by saying that you know, uh, 
global warming and, and excess carbon dioxide is doing a lot of harm to our environment, uh, you know, in, in terms of global warming, ocean warming, ocean acidification, uh, things that threaten species. So inaction is, is a real problem, uh, mm -hmm. you know, because just kind of letting, uh, seeing what happens will, will lead to very bad conclusions for a lot of animals that we care very much about and that we depend upon. Uh, but we want to do this, and the whole industry wants to do this safely and responsibly. And there's a lot of structure that's built into how these wind farms are even given the permission to begin construction. So the way it all starts, the, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, which is a part of uh, the Department of the Interior, will create a, a large, we'll call it a call area off the coast. And say, this is an area that looks like it has good wind. It, it could be a good spot to build some wind farms. And uh, they'll go through a very thorough and, and multi-year process where they begin by doing environmental studies of the area to make sure that they're not covering any sensitive areas that provide critical habitat for threatened species. They'll, they'll carve out all of those areas from this larger call area. Then they go and they, do, they look to avoid stakeholder conflicts, so military, shipping, commercial fishing, things like that, hmm. and will remove all the areas uh, that would create problematic conflicts for those areas. So they start with this big call area and it gets winnowed down to what's called a final sale lease area. And that's what, you know, US Wind and other developers ultimately bid on. And we won the rights to our lease area. At that point, the first thing we have to do is put together a site assessment plan, which is our plan for how we will learn all the things we need to know about the ecosystem here and the location so that we can then develop safely. Federal hmm. government has to approve that plan to come up with a plan. Once they do that, we can work on what's called our construction and operations plan. And this is, you know, a thousand page document that gets into excruciating detail about every single component of design, how it will be sourced, how it will be transported, installed, operated, and then ultimately wow. decommissioned and removed. It also will go into great detail about every single risk that we create by doing this and how we will mitigate those risks. We'll go through several, you know, back and forths with, with BOEM on this. We'll, we'll, you know, we've submitted uh, a, a draft. They come back with additional questions, areas they would like us to, you know, expand upon. When they finally say this is complete and sufficient, we then go into a two-year NEPA process. So the National Environmental Protection Act, where this massive, highly detailed design document is assessed against every single federal environmental law that exists and any relevant state laws for where we're coming into contact with the state. So this is clean water, clean air, marine mammal protection, migratory birds, Coastal Zone Management Act, Magnuson-Stevenson's fisheries, everything else that's out there. We have to pass every one of those standards. And at that point, the federal government will say, okay, you're good to go ahead and build this. And that, that's a two-year process. There's public engagement. Wow. Uh, so you've really got to get this nailed. Now, I can say, you know, I started with US Wind about a year ago. And I'm thoroughly impressed with the people that I work with with how committed they are, not just to doing this successfully, but doing it right. Mm -hmm. And I'm convinced that other developers look at this because we're right at the precipice of an industry that can, can just explode. It can really take off. And if it does so, it's going to do a lot of good. Nobody wants to be the person to mess this up, to make a mistake and mess it up. So, um, you know, let's let's start talking with them about some of the things that matter to people. And 
as you look at risks to different parts of the environment, some risks are created during the actual construction process when you're installing the wind farm, and some risks are, are more prevalent while, it, while it's being operated, after you're finished construction while it's being operated. So, for example, marine mammals. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think a thing that a lot of people care about, whales, dolphins, things like mm-hmm. that. The principal risk to these animals is not during operation. Uh, when a wind farm is operating, the amount of noise that it creates is, is very, very small relative to the noise that already exists in the ocean, really does not change behavior. The turbines are about a mile apart, uh, so plenty of room for these animals to move around. The cables uh, are insulated, sheathed, armored, and buried. So in any electromagnetic fields that come out are only perceptible within a couple meters of, of where they are. Um, so that's not really an issue. But for these animals, uh, the noise that is created during construction, mm-hmm. uh, as well as the noise from the vessels doing the construction and the potential impact you know, of, of a ship strike from the vessels that are moving around, that those are the risks that matter with respect to marine mammals. So what we do to mitigate this, first of all, we, we set it up so we try to do construction counter seasonally. So we go out there when, and we've, you know, we've studied the area, we know which creatures are there, when they're more likely to be there. We go out during the months when they're less likely to be there, when the marine mammals of, of all species will have lower densities in and around our lease area. Then we've got NOAA certified observers on board the, the, the vessels that are doing this work when they get out there, they have to certify that an area is completely clear of marine mammals for a full hour before construction can begin. Then when that's cleared, they start the pile driving of these monopile tur- of turbine foundations with what's called a soft start. It's like, a, it's just a tapping. And they do that for a half an hour. And that allows any marine mammals that are clear of the area, but still where they can hear it, to get further away. And we know that behaviorally, that is typically what they will do. They will move further away. Then after that 30 minute state, you know, soft start, the actual construction can begin. It typically takes about two to four hours to get one fully in. This can be work that, you know, the setting up of getting the vessels in the right place, things like that can, can span two days, but it's two to four hours worth of work. We will only put in one monopile foundation per day and when we do that, we also use sound dampening technology like double bubble curtains and physical sheaths to trap about 20 decibels of, of that energy mm-hmm. that's out there. Now, if a, if a marine mammal is sighted during the construction process, everything has to stop. You go back to a 60 minute clearance, 30 minute soft start, and it begins again. So yes, there, there is some risk, but extreme measures are taken to make sure these animals are not harmed. You've got the least possibility of that happening. And that also protects other, other animals, you know, that could be impacted by the, by the noise, but marine mammals are, are most susceptible. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the, uh, you know, the risk of vessel strikes, when we're moving around the wind farm, uh, first of all, we're monitoring, you know, like North Atlantic right whale monitoring systems. So we know when, when they're out there, if any are sighted, uh, and, and during certain times of the year, all of our vessels are moving below 10 knots. And there have been numbers of studies have done that show that the, the risk of a, of, a, of a strike goes down significantly at below 10 knots versus above 10 knots. Uh, and we won't operate if, I don't know if it's foggy and you don't have physical you know, ability to do visual clearance uh, of those areas. 
Uh, and then otherwise, uh, you know, there are, you know, in those areas, uh, you know, there's a major shipping channel nearby, there are commercial fisheries and things like that. So the noise that our vessels would introduce is really not anything more than what's already there. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, there's some risk, but a lot of work to make sure that that risk is really minimized. You know, we, we used to live outside Joshua Tree um, and you used to be in our shelves when we first started out there, right? <laughs> and um, in Palm Springs, there's, you know, the, the, the alleyway of uh, wind farms, right? And it's actually become a tourist thing where people go and tour the wind farms. From there, though, there were fires once in a while that happened and birds would fly in. And that mm -hmm. was something, you know, I've always heard about. And I think, you know, we talked about this on shows before, Mike, on way back when in Ocean Champion days, I remember talking about, you know, offshore wind. And I'm like, no, the poor birds. And what about the coral reefs? And you're like, no, really, it's not that bad. And I'm like, yes, it is. And here we are. <laughs> so here we are. But, um, you know, but it also has proven like some of the solar plants, if they get too big and too crazy, it actually isn't good. Like they there were some negative ones in the desert, the high desert, and um, it and they actually can create harm to you know burrowing owls. And there's like there's we've done shows on it, and um, it's really about the companies and going through these you know processes like you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Does the the fire thing when we were in Palm Springs area, the the fire thing, it would get taken out pretty fast, but. Is that minimized by being in the ocean, do you think? And, and what about the birdies? So yeah, I guess, Leah, let's, let's start with birds. Um, and so again, part of the reason that the lease area is sited where it was sited is that that's an area of low bird density relative to other areas offshore. So okay. the areas to our west uh, have far greater densities of birds than, the, than our lease area. And we've done you know, studies about every two years, we're doing studies right now. We have counts of birds in the area by species by month. We know who's there and it's, it's lower density. So first of all, there's a lower incidence of risk just based upon fewer birds being there. And then the mm -hmm. other thing we study is flight behavior. Uh, and the, the turbine, the, the rotor path, the turbine path, that circumference at its lowest point will be 95 feet above the ocean. And all of the bird species that are found out there uh, spend the great majority of their flight time below 95 feet. So they're mm. not where they're gonna strike the, the rotors. Uh, one species spends 60% of its time below 95 feet. All the rest spend 80% or more below 95 feet. So fewer birds, flight behavior doesn't indicate they'll be in the risk zone very often. And then the other thing which differentiates offshore wind from onshore wind uh, is that there are no rolling hills, buildings, trees, anything like that that's going to obstruct a bird's view. They can see the turbines mm -hmm. for miles. So it's much easier for them to avoid the wind farms uh, than it is for a, a terrestrial bird to avoid an onshore turbine. Uh, and, and all of this has been proven out by studies that they've done over in Europe where they've had offshore wind for 30 mm. years. They've what they've seen is that uh, you know, the offshore large bodied birds tend to just avoid the wind farms entirely. Uh, so again, the risk is, is far lower. Now, as, as far as fire is concerned, uh, you know, each, the nacelle is the, the housing that holds the, the hub of the, uh, of the blades that rotates and has the generators 
that then create the turn that that energy into you know, kinetic energy into actual you know, electricity. Um, and feeling stuck in your current job, looking for a career pivot? Are you a proven leader looking to step up? The University of Maryland's Robert H. Smith School of Business prepares students to meet challenges, solve problems, and obtain a profound understanding of how to operate in the modern economy. With MBA and MS programs offering flexible options to fit your lifestyle and goals. GMAT and GRE not required. Learn more today at go.umd.edu slash smithschool. University of Maryland Smith School of Business. Inspired. Fearless. Unstoppable. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? It's not just a bike. Peloton makes treadmills too. Eh, all treadmills are the same. Our treadmills can adjust speed and incline automatically so you never break your stride. Whether you're squeezing in a power walk or training for a marathon, Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Tread risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. There are, you know, multiple redundant systems for dealing with any capacity, including uh, secondary storage to contain any, you know, there, there are about 200 gallons of lubricating oils in each nacelle. Now, a typical fishing boat will have 400 gallons of petrochemicals on it. So again, oh. by comparison, not that much, but secondary storage is set up to catch all of that if any of it were to, to break out. So very low risk of any kind of oil spill. Nonetheless, we have an oil spill response plan. We also have, you know, response plans for anything that would happen in the case of a fire. Um, but you've got operational maintenance going on with these things. Uh, they're a mile apart, so if something were to happen, it's not going to spread. Okay. Yeah, we <laughs> you got know, water. You get out there, but again, you know, they're they're engineered such that these things shouldn't happen. And I'm actually not aware of any fires that have happened on the offshore turbines in Europe. Uh, hmm. It's worth checking into. But but again, the you know. The amount of redundancy that goes into the safety protocols for how these are designed and built is, is pretty phenomenal. I think it's a lot harder to start a fire in the middle of the ocean than it is on land. <laughs> <laughs> if it's a rum ship, now that will catch no, fire. I mean, really. Or a Porsche ship, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. But this is important. I mean, it, it's, you know, when you look at tourism too, I think it's a way for I mean, will this eventually, I know in Palm Springs, like I was saying, they have the two wind farms, maybe more, but they were doing tours, as, as I recall. Is that something down the road that people can be part of to go and tour and actually learn and see everything you're talking about? Look at you, Mr. Wind Specialist. <laughs> you know, it's like, look at all the scientific geek stuff, you know, it's great. You know, and it's like, you know, when you think about, but it is all these questions, it's, you know, we we as, as a society have to understand how all of this works because well, yeah. a lot of what we're going off of is opinion-based, right? And emotionally charged. And it's an important to understand how it all works so we can, you know, have a clear opinion that goes off of fact and, and science. And, you know, it, do you think that down the road, your company, US Wind, you know, that you're representing with, that they will open it up that people can, learn and maybe do a tour once a month or something i know you're still all in that big production part and and look how how long it takes by the way just this is one thing that really hit me as you were talking how long yeah. this process takes and the longer we all wait to not the learn and, and start moving the, we we the time is ticking right mm -hmm. that's what we're talking yeah. about the other day margo you know the time mm -hmm. the clock is ticking on climate yeah. change and 
the longer we prolong these movements, the, you know, we're not going to be happy campers. So it's important that we learn. Do you think that that kind of outreach will happen down the road? Uh, I'm sure. Well, I actually, I don't think that we would do it, but uh, uh, Block Island Wind Farm, which is the only industrial offshore wind farm that exists in the industrial scale wind farm that exists in the United States. It's three miles off the coast of Block Island uh, and about 16 oh. miles off the coast of Rhode Island. Uh, they actually did a study of tourism before, during, and after construction. And what they found on Block Island tourism in terms of occupancy, rates, and revenues uh, actually increased after uh, the turbines were in installed, after they were constructed. Uh, fishing, recreational fishing, it's become a destination to go out and fish the turbines themselves because they become artificial reefs. Mm -hmm. I'd have to, to send you guys a link. Uh, there are two okay. test turbines off the coast of Virginia that have been there for a year and it already looks like an aquarium. It's incredible. Really? Um, but in Block Island, there's also a thriving charter business that's taking people out to see the turbines. And I would expect that, you know, some commercial operations out of Lewis or out of Ocean City will, will start to do the same things here. It's a great opportunity for uh, private enterprise. That's awesome. So, uh, go ahead, Mark. You know, we really, really do need to do something. You know, we can't just keep sitting back and going, okay, we've got to think about it, think about it, think about it. We don't have that kind of time. So, and I'm, I'm pretty confident that as we go into this next era of doing things like this, if something goes wrong, we'll find a way to fix it, as mm -hmm. opposed to sitting and doing nothing and and we just all get really hot. Procrastinate, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and it, it's it's a long timeline. So uh, mm. to your point, we, we won the rights to our lease area in 2014. Uh, our first uh, ORIC award from the Maryland Public Service Commission was 2017. We expect to begin construction on that award in 2024 and wow. finish it in 2025. Yikes. So these timelines will come down a bit as the process gets a little bit more well understood and, and, and mm. you know, more used to this. But that's 10 years. Uh, yeah. So yeah, you, you, we need to get going. The, the good yeah, news is that there are probably more now, but there, there are 14 projects in some state of approval between Massachusetts and North Carolina for about 30 gigabytes, uh, or excuse me, gigawatts. Mm. <laughs> Techie yeah, nerd, yeah, yeah. gigawatts <laughs> worth Beam of up. energy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then that's going to start to make a real difference in terms of getting this industry to scale. Wow. Marco, I know you had some questions. I have a question. Um, you answered the other one and it, you made me feel so much more comfortable. So I'm going to put this one out there because I know that the, the listeners are, are going to have this question too. Um, because I live at the ocean. <laughs> I live <laughs> at the beach. So behind you and I are beautiful ocean views, okay? So you said um, it, these uh, windmills go about three miles out, is that right? Where that was the, the Block Island wind farm is oh. three miles off the coast of Block Island. Our particular lease area comes mm -hmm. as close as 12 miles to the coast and goes as far back as 26. Okay. Uh, what we'll be what we'll be building right now, the 1.1 gigawatts we have the ability to build right now begins at 15 miles from the coast and goes back to 26. Okay, so on your picture behind you, <laughs> if you could raise your hand and say, where would it be seen as a person on the beach be looking out? 
Oh, that's she's, she's looking at the view. I'm, I'm, as a photographer, I'm saying, what, yeah. what's the view going to be like? I wonder if I could do this because we actually have just now come out with a, a time-lapse video simulation of it's what on the, the website. Everyone, like. yeah, yeah, everyone can um, go there. Cool. In fact, in fact, what we'll do is for everyone who's watching, if this the video is on YouTube, right? Um, I will try and embed it at the end of this so people can actually I can, see well, that. I've got it on. Uh, I've got it on my hard drive. And oh, right. okay. You do need so, to download it. Yeah. But just to answer Margot's question. Um, uh, uh, I guess I'll start by saying everyone will experience this differently. Um, but uh, during you know peak season in the summertime, there's a lot of moisture in the air, and how visible the turbines are at any point in time depends upon position of the sun in the sky. So whether it's mm -hmm. backlit, frontlit, or overhead, the color of the clouds behind it, and how much moisture is in the air. And what you'll see in this video is that when you can see them, it's like a thumbnail on the horizon maybe but of course it's very skinny it's a you know it's a stick at, at that length but about thumbnail sized but through the heart of the day for about five hours it's almost impossible to see them at all oh. and again that's because of the moisture in the air and, and, and how they're lit um uh you know and, and and again everyone will experience that differently you guys know, I've talked to you, I have a place in Dewey Beach and I spend lots of time sitting there thinking deep thoughts, looking out at the horizon. And I, I finally, this year working for US Wind, this last summer, I should say, kind of forced myself to notice what was going on around me. And we've got a major shipping channel here. There are container ships and cargo ships coming in and out of there all day long. Mm -hmm. We've got ad boats, ad planes, fishing boats, jet skis. I never noticed this because that was my normal. And I filtered it out and I saw the ocean that I wanted to see. And I believe that for me, I'm, I'm confident that that's what's gonna happen with the turbines for me, that I will just kind of filter them out and I'll see the ocean I wanna see. For some people that maybe won't be the case, but again, when you see them, they're very, very tiny. And a lot of people that you talk to, people that tend to be you know, more progressive and, and, and understand the risk of climate change, sea level rise and things like that, what they say is that when I look at them, I see hope. You know, I, mm -hmm. I see the future. It makes me feel good that people are doing some things. Uh, so we'll yeah. see. But, but yeah, check out. We'll, we'll check out that simulation. It's mm -hmm. about four minutes, but it, it does a great job of. Well, we'll add it exactly to the end of this. It. Yeah, we'll add yeah. it to the end of this for our viewers that are watching on YouTube and Facebook. For those mm -hmm. who are listening by audio, please go to uswindinc.com, right? I've got that right. Um, and you'll see it there. And also just go to bigblendradio.com. You'll see our YouTube channel there um, with this interview. This is really when you talk about the view, it is important mm -hmm. um, as, as you know, park travelers and documenting parks and public lands. You know, we've, we started our tour in 2012 going, oh, National Park Service units only. And then we quickly learned actually one of our very first parks, we went out with the Forest Service and they're like, what about us? We need maintenance. We need we need mm -hmm. help. I mean, and, you know, so we learned, OK, you know, everybody needs help in the park section funding wise and all of those areas. But you know, that's part of why we have the National Park Service and these parks is to protect the pristine environments where we're in, well, the U.S. Forest Service, things can be done on there. That's a little different for energy uh, and BLM land, but each, this is why it is actually important as travelers, we go, oh, isn't this beautiful? We don't normally think, is it a park, a national park or a state park or what is it, you know, what level of management, but it actually means 
a whole bunch to learn about it. You know, in a national forest, uh, logging can occur, uh, gas rights, uh, there's cattle ranching and, and things like that. And a lot of national park services, that can happen depending on the land agreement when they actually establish the park unit. So like if you go to Point Reyes uh, National Seashore up in Northern California, you will see cattle. Right now, they're also looking at um, culling the tule elk, which is a big hot issue. But there's oyster ranching, oyster farming, and that has been a big thing in Drake's Estero um, because those were old ranches that were there at the time when the park was established. So you will see things like that here and there. But at the same time you go to the beach, you have this pristine view that we're talking about. And so that's the balance that we have of what we need for us as human beings to survive and for mm. the environment, things like what you're doing with the offshore, but then the parks offer this other place of, okay, don't mess with this. And the more protection we put on the parks, the more U.S. wind can do on the other side. You know, oh, and, you, and, and, does I, that I, make I, sense? You know what I mean? There's a balance that we have to come to and you're right, the ticking clock is the ticking clock and exactly. we're gonna have to sacrifice some views here and there, but. I, you know what it is? They don't look like the Dutch windmill. We want the Dutch windmill. You see, if they looked like that, everybody would be, oh, how cute. That's no, what we want. True, because when we go through towns, well, every once in a while, you'll see a Dutch windmill. We're like, and oh, then we go, yeah, that's cute. And then we're like, well, what, what's really cute about it? You know, yeah, the yeah. fact that it's a Dutch one. They look they like snowshoes going around. <laughs> no, but <laughs> nature is incredibly forgiving and adaptive given time. And I think that the ocean creatures will adapt to this better than they will the whole sea warming up to where they get fried. Well, that's, oh, yeah. that's precisely right. I mean, the Audubon yeah. Society endorses offshore wind because they've said that two thirds of bird species are threatened by climate change anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, similarly, uh, ocean acidification, which is based on CO2 intake in the oceans is mm. destroying the base of the food web. So, you know, zooplankton, like, you know, plankton from SpongeBob, that's the base mm. of the food web, but calcium carbonate, they need calcium carbonate to form their hardened shells that allow them to survive. Well, they can't as the ocean acidifies. And so exactly. that food source disappears, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, um, but yeah and I, I don't want to understate it. So it, the, the view shed is, is the biggest risk. It's, I should say risk, it's the biggest question in people's mind and the biggest worry that people have. Mm. Um, and and it certainly it is a change, but I look at it again as, uh, a small sacrifice for the greater good, because if you look at sea level rise and, and the Delmarva Peninsula where I am, uh, there's about a foot to a foot and a half of additional sea level rise that is baked in between now and 20, about 2055. So that's our lifetimes, you know, and certainly our children's lifetime, mm -hmm. um, you know, a foot and a half. There's nothing we can do about that, but everything we do right now is going to influence what the second half of the century looks like and whether it's viable if Delaware gets to about two and a half feet of sea level rise, we're gonna lose about 10% of our land here on the mm -hmm. peninsula. Drinking water is compromised. Septic systems will be prob mm -hmm. problematic. We don't want Farming that. is challenged. Saltwater mm -hmm. inundation is already poisoning arable land in, in the farming communities. Oh, wow. And, you know, of course, property values and things like that, the effect of storms. So, you know, Again, uh, we'll look at the video and you can see, I think it's it's not that big of a deal 
but it's certainly different than what is, is there right now. Mm-hmm. But if you want the ability to be able to stand on that beach and take that view in at all, <laughs> yeah, I think this is necessary. Exactly. Well, you know, I think it is. And um, it, we're lucky that we have this option. You know, it, it's thank goodness, you know, we're looking at what's going on in the world in this country. And, you know, we had uh, the, you know, the climate summit, um, you know, I but think we, it's down to the companies and the nonprofits. We have to work with gov- like government, you know, mm-hmm. you guys definitely have to go through all that red tape and whoever's doing all the red tape work for you guys deserves way more than wine. <laughs> <laughs> and we're the ones who all sit there, go put the red tape on. Right. But then, sorry, here, here, have a bottle of wine and, and, and make it all work. Right. But, but it's, it, things we were talking about this the other day, you know, uh, the show, Margo, Nancy and I were talking about it's the government is working too slow, it feels like for all of us who are activists and want things to change. It feels and it it is up to, you know, we need to support the companies and the nonprofits that are doing things. It feels like we just have to almost forget about, oh, are you going to that summit? Did you actually do what we needed and wanted at that time? How how no, strong we, were you about mm-hmm. it? And are you fulfilling what you said? You know, and I mean this globally, I'm, I'm just, you know, politician wise, like, what are you doing? You know, so at this point, I think it, it is down to it's just my personal opinion, and everyone can email me and yell at me and get me on social media, <laughs> whatever. But it is about us taking individual stands. We were talking about this within your community. Mm-hmm. You're doing it in Delaware and, and Maryland, you know, and if someone could do that in California and, and replicate it, it is it is about what can we do in our backyard? You know, how, how much with U.S. wind, with Delaware and, and Maryland, how, obviously Maryland especially, right, how much power can you give households, like that kind of number, like what, oh. how, yeah, let's, let's, I don't want a gigawatt thing, because I don't understand gigawatts. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's a great <laughs> question, it's important, so our 1.1 gigawatts is enough energy to power about 350,000 homes. Look at that. Uh, and then Orsted is bringing in another close to one gigawatt, so that's you know, 650, 700,000 homes. And that's, that's Delaware, Huge. you know? Uh, so, you know, you're, you're bringing a power plant worth of energy onto, you know, onshore. And the other thing it's doing, Delaware imports and, and you know, Ocean City imports most of their energy. And a lot of it is coming down a corridor from north to south from Wilmington. And it kind of parallels the main highway, you know, coming down to this area. And just yeah. like highway traffic, energy can get congested. And when it, when it does, it loses, you, you lose energy, then the transmission is, is less efficient. And that actually causes costs to go up for the rate payer. So just by bringing all of this energy in from the East will alleviate the need to bring more energy from the North. You know, energy can be used more efficiently uh, and it can, clog, it can, it can declog some of the congestion that exists. There are a lot of mm. positives to just bringing in diversity of sources by location. And what about the cost for the homeowner? I mean, when they look at, you know, regular electricity versus this, I mean, is this going to be more money for them? Another great question. An area where offshore wind has become so much more cost competitive, you know, and and again, we're bidding on lowest price winds, right? So uh, first of all, because Maryland uh, created the OREX and made these stipulations, they also get to claim this against their state renewable energy standard. 
um, and the energy costs will be passed through to Maryland ratepayers. Um, the cost to the average Maryland ratepayer for the 1.1 gigawatts that we're delivering will be about $1.85 a month. So not significant. It's a, yeah, it's a small that's number. nothing. Um, but that also benefits the whole area. So because the mm -hmm. energy will be delivered to the grid in Delaware and the electrons, you know, how you bill for energy versus where the electrons are consumed are, are two different things. And all of that energy coming will help the whole peninsula coming into this area. And, you know, this is a big growing area. It's a huge retirement destination. Lots of homes being built, lots of people coming down here. And that energy can now be met with green energy. Or that oh, energy awesome. need can now be met with. Awesome. What is the difference in regards to doing solar versus offshore wind? Like, I know we talk about oil and everything. And I, <laughs> welcome back to the show, Mike. <laughs> I got to go into this. But, you know, because we look at solar, <clears throat> a lot of people doing it themselves, which I think is great. And they're doing it, you know, at home and whatever. Mm -hmm. um, how, how, would, how does this differ? I mean, or is it just as good and everyone should work together? What, you know? Well, I mean, the, the bottom line is that I think we're in a place where, and Margo actually touched on this, it's not just what can companies like U.S. Wind do, it's what can we all do individually with mm -hmm. our own footprint. But we really should be looking to develop every type of renewable energy Absolutely. that is efficiently developable in a certain area. And along mm -hmm. the East Coast, where you've got you know, huge population centers demanding energy, the resource we have access to that is scalable is offshore wind. The wind blows much more you know, strongly and consistently offshore than it does onshore. Mm -hmm. Build bigger turbines out there than you can on land to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've got rooftop solar all over Maryland and Delaware, and that's great. Uh, in the Nevada desert, they have utility grade solar, you know, again, because you've got great sun. Mm -hmm. there. Um, mm -hmm. You've got, you know, uh, onshore wind in the plains and desert areas. That's great. But one of the things we also have to recognize, we have basically three grid systems in the United States, basically an Eastern grid, a Western grid, and Texas, um, and a couple different grid managers in those places. But very little energy can pass from grid to grid right now. That's something that, that the government is working to solve. So, you know, the, the solar farms in Nevada and the wind farms in, you know, Palm Springs and, and in the Plains, that can't come east right now. So that can do a great deal of good for, for their local grid systems. But, you know, for us, we've got some solar, we've got some onshore wind, but we're going to be developing in this grid system a whole lot of offshore wind. And that's what we can take advantage of. Okay, that's great. That makes so sense. Each that place is different. Sense. It's like yeah. every person is different. And, hmm. you know, it's even about like if you could live in the same neighborhood and one person can grow blueberries and the next person next door can't because they have a different microclimate. It's true. <laughs> you know, it's uh -huh. like everybody's different. So that makes sense. I mean, I think it's cool. This is so, yeah. it's exciting. I, I just, I, I just wish it worked faster. I mean, but you know, exactly. that's just not the, you but, know. You know, we started talking about this in the seventies, if not before. I've heard this when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. We were talking about what to do energy. Oh, that wise. means it was a so, hundred years ago. I know it's over a hundred <laughs> years ago. No, really, we've been talking about this for so long. Look how long it took for people to adjust their minds to accept doing something different. Mm -hmm. I think yeah, you know, that with this the the wind uh, mills, the 
uh, Palm Springs uh, had them up about 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. They've been there forever. Yeah. 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 Forever. So, I mean, yeah. Before I moved to San Diego and I've been here, I want to say 25 years, but. Mm -hmm. Who's yeah, you, 25. <laughs> yeah, because we know you but, for 25 years. So I mean, years. It just, yeah. people just yeah. need to get used to making sensible change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, I've always known Palm Springs to be there with them. I think they increased. I think there was one and then they increased. But they mm -hmm. take people on tours and educate mm -hmm. about, you know, what, you know. And so it it's, does. that's why I'm so glad you're here, Mike, because we're, we get to yeah. actually ask the questions and get answers that, you know, instead of, Oh, I don't like this, or I did. You know what I mean? It's what well, it is. It's we've got to this point, you know, that we really hear what is happening out there, and there are solutions, which is cool, you know. Absolutely. And, and yeah. if you can save money while doing it, that's even better, you know. And and it takes time. I think you know the more we do for the environment, sometimes it costs more in the beginning. But that's with anything. It's like when you make an investment into health, if you buy a treadmill, you're going to make an investment. But over time, you're not going to be going to the doctor. You know? and, you'll, <laughs> so and you'll have a better place to hang your clothes. That's right. Yes. And every, tread, every treadmill must have it's a It's your new bookshelf. A wine holder, a wine glass holder. Every treadmill must have I know, that. they do have cup holders. It's very convenient. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much, Mike. It has been yeah. a real pleasure having you back on the show. And uh, everyone, again, mm -hmm. uswindinc.com is the website to go to and watch the video. We're going to attach it here at the end of this uh, video uh, conversation as well. Cool. And of course, keep up with Margo at carrerafineartgallery.com. Uh, talk about some nature inspiration. That is the place to go. Mm -hmm. And Margo, you're, you've got an Etsy store too that I want people to know. That's uh, for those scarves. She makes the most beautiful scarves um, yeah they're all nature photography um placed on the scarves so and they're all like i have uh, ones of trees and it's complete view of a tree and and i have one right now um in uh, napa where i live for a little while they're they're celebrating the mustard celebration because oh, oh. all the mustard grows in, mm -hmm. in vineyards and I have a scarf with the mustard fields on. And the sunflowers nice. for Ukraine. Sunflowers. <laughs> <laughs> it's very cool. And of course, keep up with us at bigblendradio.com. We air this show uh, every fourth Friday with Margo. So thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Ninety-two percent of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. Ninety-two percent because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. Ninety-two percent stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com/home-trial.